0: I am Daniel, I am one of the pastors here at H2O, and you may be wondering, well, if you're one of the pastors here, why haven't we heard you up here preaching, big guy? Um, but I was actually thinking about that this morning, so this actually is the first time that I'm preaching here in Lindner since I was ordained, um, so that's an honor to do that. I'm glad to see you guys. Um, I don't know about some of you guys, but I went to a spring break trip a couple weeks ago. And there's different options, but the one that I went on, we went to Panama City, and we did a lot of disaster relief. In fact, Ken Dillard, who's right over here, he's not waving, but his wife is pointing to him. He led that trip, and Ken, we're glad to have you here with us this morning. And We got to do a lot of work. We got to do a lot of service. We cut down a bunch of trees. We lopped a bunch of branches. If you don't know what that means, it just means doing this, and if you break a lopper, then you break a lopper. I don't know what else to tell you, but I did break one uh, on a tree that was a little bit too thick, and it should have had a chainsaw. Um, But when I got back... I was pretty physically tired. You know, I was, I was, I would say, emotionally, spiritually full, but I was physically tired. And then this past week, as you guys know, we started back to class, which is kind of a bummer for some of you guys, I'm sure. Um, it's like, man, I just want this semester to be over. I want summer to be here. I want it not to be cold anymore. And then God was like, well, <laughs> it's going to be cold today. So good luck with that. Um, but this past week, I started getting the sniffles you know, and then I started coughing and then we had some intramural games on Wednesday and coming back, I was like, my head was hurting, my stomach was hurting. I just wanted to go to bed, but I was hungry. I was very confused. I was just like, oh. And so that's been going on the last few days. Well, this morning I woke up and I was like, hey, It's just 6.45, and I feel pretty good. That's not usual in and of itself. So, hey, that's a good thing. Praise God for that. And then the first word I say this morning is just a big wad of phlegm, just like, oh. And I was like, oh, no. God, we don't need that during the sermon. People, That's going to gross out every single woman in this building and about half the guys. I don't have a bath. I don't have like a bathroom or a trash can down here. I don't have a water bottle. That's got to be good, you know. And so it was just a reminder this morning of my own weakness. And as I thought about this, you know, this, this, approaching this sermon for the last few weeks, it's like, man, like, who am I to stand up here and preach to you guys? And it's like, I, I'm weak. You know, I don't think really I have anything to say. But in that process, as I was looking through God's word and studying what it says, I reminded of how good and strong God is and how much he fulfills us in spite of our weakness. And so this morning, we're going to be spending a lot of time in scripture, a lot of time in scripture. So I'm just telling you now. Just get ready. It's going to come at you. It's going to be fast. It's going to be a lot of slides. Some of them aren't even on slides. There's going to be a lot of scripture because I want to remember, man, I am weak, but God is strong. All right, let's pray. Father God, you so much for bringing us here this morning together to worship in your name, Lord, to sing praises to you. Thank you for those who have led us this morning, their voices and their talents. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of you and your strength and what your word says and that we would believe that what you say is true and that we would put our trust in you. But we thank you and praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now we finished our uh, last series before spring break. And if you were here last week, Jeff Mixon from New Life was here. He brought the word. Am I right? Oh, my gosh. I remember somebody was telling me after they were saying, oh, he was just so gentle and, and quiet. And then he started reading God's word. And I was like, whoa, you know. Um, that's how Jeff is. He loves God's word, just like I do. And hopefully you guys do as well. Um, so that was kind of a standalone sermon. And starting this week... And to the rest of the semester, we're going to be going through the book of Titus. Okay, yeah, Titus. Now, um, earlier today, I was at the city service. You guys know Luke Hawker? You know, he's, he's a redheaded guy, very obviously redheaded. So um, when I was in seminary, when I was in grad school, I actually taught preschool. And I had this little kid. And he was a redhead, and his name was Titus, you know. And he was just one of those kind of rapscallion kind of kids. And they would get up from nap, and you know, the kids are supposed to wipe their mat down and put it up. And he did not want to wipe his mat down. You know, I don't know if you guys ever had to sleep on mats and want to wipe it down. And so we had to do a little negotiation. You know what I'm saying? And he's like, well, he wiped the top of the mat, and then that's that's all he had to do. Um, But whenever I think of Titus, that's who I think of. I think of a little red-headed boy, but in reality, the Titus in the Bible is not not that Titus, okay? And so this morning, I'm going to do a little bit of an intro of the book, and we're going to look at the first few verses, and we're going to springboard from there into some other parts of Scripture. Does that sound good? All right, so just some quick things about Titus. One is it's a letter written by Paul. Okay, so in chapter one, verse one, it says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might think, okay, that's kind of a weird beginning to a letter because like when I write a letter, I say, dear mom, comma, and then I keep writing and I say, love, Daniel. You know, that's kind of what I do. But in this time, you would always start your letters with who you were. And so Paul is telling us, hey, I'm Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. I wrote this letter. Now, this this fact was universally accepted until so the last 200 years. Okay, so about 1,800 years, everybody's like, yep, Paul, that dude wrote that letter. And then about 200 years ago, people started saying, well, maybe Paul didn't write that letter. But in reality, there's nothing um, from, the, from the scripture, from the text, that implies that anybody other than Paul wrote this. It was written to Titus, chapter 1, verse 4 says, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. Now, Titus was living on an island called Crete. Now, does anybody know where Crete is? Yeah, where's Crete at? It's south of Greece, that's correct. So I have to have a map. Okay, yeah, so see that circle right there? I kind of had to add that myself. So that's Crete. So it's kind of southeast of Crete, kind of northwest of Egypt in the Mediterranean Sea. Has anybody ever been to the Mediterranean before? Hey, we got one, maybe two, a couple people. Awesome, cool. That's somewhere I would like to go. Uh, I've been to Italy before, going again this summer, but I haven't actually been to the Mediterranean Sea itself. But Titus uh, was on the island of Crete. And Paul left him there to continue establishing churches. Chapter 1, verse 5 says this, I left you in Crete to settle right what was left undone. Okay, so that's why Paul had left Titus there. Now, the letter of Titus, along with First and Second Timothy, are commonly known as the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles you guys heard of that word before see epistle and you're like oh what is what is an epistle is that like a gun no an epistle is a letter okay and so it's a, and it's called this because Titus and Timothy were both pastors and Paul is guiding them in how to shepherd and lead the church now traditionally it's thought that the letter of Titus was written after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, okay? So Paul had gone to Rome, he was in prison, and then we think that he was probably released, and then he went back into prison again. And so in between that time is probably when Titus was written, which would have been in the mid-60s AD, so I think maybe 63, 65 AD. And the letter addresses several things. One of those is false teachings, which Paul often addresses in his letter. There's some teaching in the church that is damaging to the gospel and not edifying to the church. And so Paul addresses that. It also addresses church leadership, which Kyle is gonna be preaching on next week. And then it also talks about how the church should live, which is kind of our general theme of this series. It looks at the link between our faith and our actions. Okay, now we're gonna actually look at scripture now. So if you have your Bible or your app, I suggest opening up to Titus chapter one. Um, if you guys are familiar with Deeper Waters, Grant is leading Deeper Waters right now, but in, in the, you know, some semesters, I teach Deeper Waters, and I'm going to do today somewhat like that. Okay? It's going to be a lot of scripture focusing in on that, less of me, more of that. And now, unfortunately, you know, we're not in a small group environment where we can have as much of a conversation But if I ask a question, you guys feel free to yell something out, okay? It won't be as much of that as there are deeper waters, but that will happen, okay? So we're going to look at the first four verses of Titus chapter 1. So Titus 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began in his own time, he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, so in verse one, Paul says that he's a slave, or maybe some of your translations say servant or bondservant, okay? Maybe it says that. And this is a very significant thing, okay? And his wording there actually suggests a link to the servants of God from the Old Testament. Think Moses, David, and the prophets. This means that Paul sees himself as a spokesman for God to the church, God's people, okay? So it means, hey, take notice. This is significant for you, the church. Also, in the first century, a servant or a slave did not speak for themselves; They spoke to On the the authority of their master. Okay, so here Paul is saying, My master is God and Jesus, and I speak on their authority to you. So here we see that the purpose of Paul's calling, which is his apostleship, is to build up the faith of the church, in particular, the knowledge of the truth, which leads to the hope of eternal life. And this hope of eternal life. Is not something that's new. So maybe you're thinking, oh, hey, like this idea of hope comes up in the Gospels or in Paul's letters. This idea of eternal life comes up in the Gospels or in the New Testament. That's not actually true. God has promised it from long ago, from aforetime again, which is what Paul says here. It is a promise that was building and building from the very beginning. And God has revealed it in his own perfect timing. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says this. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. So the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay His promises, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to Him in repentance. So sometimes God promises something, and we might feel like, "Bro, let's get let's get it going, man! You're so slow. What is the deal? It's been like two hours. You know, come on!" And God is saying, "Hey, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna fulfill my promises in my time, and that might take a whole lot longer than two hours." Now, part of our hope is that God will not lie. In fact, he cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews six seventeen through 18 says, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is set before us. So because it is impossible for God to lie, when he gives us hope, when he tells us something, we can rely and trust in that. So maybe you've kind of already picked up on this, but what I'm going to focus in on this morning, what we're going to focus in on is the promises of God. Our hope is dependent on them, and if this is the case, we need some understanding of what God has promised. Is he trustworthy? In fact, the Bible is full of God's promises, especially to his people, and we as a church say, hey, we're, we're God's people, Right? We say we're God's people. We do not have the time or, quite frankly, the attention spans to look at all of them. Okay, so don't worry. We're not going through every promise God makes in the Bible. ain't happening. There's no way. Okay, but I am going to need your help. Okay, I'm going to need you to focus. I'm going to need you to work a little bit. Okay, if you're just like, hey, I'm just going to chill and relax today, that's not an option. Okay, if you, if you want to follow this, you're going to have to be engaged. So if you're a journaler, Man, get that journal out. Get ready to write. You got the little piece of paper they gave you when you came in. If you like to underline stuff in your Bible, good luck. But I suggest getting it out. Get your pen ready, your highlighter. We're going to fly through some stuff, okay? You guys ready to deep dive? Okay, excellent. Okay. Now, often in Scripture, God will make a promise by saying, I will. He says, I will do something. I will fill in the blank. Now, sometimes these I will statements are conditional. God might say, I will do this if you do that. say so there's a condition related to it. Sometimes God makes an unconditional promise. He says, I will do this, period, nothing else left. It's happening, doesn't matter what you do. Okay, so there are conditional promises and there are unconditional promises. The sheer number of I will statements in the Old Testament is staggering. Just if you had to guess, how many I will statements do you think are in the book of Jeremiah? Any Any idea? 40, 50, 60, not even close. Over 250 I will statements just in the book of Jeremiah. Over 250 I will statements just in the book of Ezekiel. And you're like, man, I even never read Ezekiel. Maybe you should read Ezekiel. I'm actually in Jeremiah right now in my quiet time, which is why I even thought about that, that scripture. But in the Old Testament, there are, God makes these I will statements all the time. And most of the time they were directed to a person or a specific people. Now, we're not going to look at Jeremiah or Ezekiel, so you can just go ahead and throw that out there. But we are going to look at Genesis and the first part of Exodus, which have over 50 instances of God saying, I will. Now, don't count, okay, because we're actually going to skip a few of them, but but, but we're going to get a lot of them, okay? And sometimes we'll look at a passage that actually has several just bang, bang, bang right away. Okay, but we're going to look through these I will statements in the books of Genesis and Exodus. Now, in the very beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 1.1? Okay, yep, Genesis 1.1. It's God created the heavens and the earth. And the pinnacle of his creation was humans, mankind. Uh, but at first, this man, Adam, was by himself. And so God says this in Genesis 2.18. He says, It is not good for man to be alone. And I will make a helper as his complement. And so God starts to show him all these wild animals and say, hey, how about the camel and the zebra and the, and the ox and the penguin? Yeah, I like the penguin. And it's just like, man, none of those are found that are a suitable helper for Adam. So God creates Eve, an equal and a companion, to be a helper for Adam. So God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. And they're living there, they're, they're having fellowship with God, they're relaxing, they're eating all this fruit. But then Satan comes as a serpent and deceives Eve, and Adam and Eve both fall into sin and disobey God. And so God says this in Genesis 3.15 to Satan, the serpent. He says, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This points to two things. One is very obvious. One, we see that, man, there's this constant struggle between humanity and evil we've fallen to sin. There's evil around us. There's consequences of that all throughout the world. I'm sure you guys have seen that. Uh, I, I think that when I we went to Panama City for spring break, you could just see the, the ravaging of, of the, the effect of sin on creation. And through that hurricane, they hit down there. But another thing that it points to is this promise that God makes that through a child, through the seed of the woman, the evil will be defeated. Okay? Now, Several generations happen, there's this long span of time, and then God interjects himself into the story of a specific family. And that is the family of Abram. Maybe you know him as Abraham. You know his more common name, but he was actually Abram for most of his life, and so God changed his name. And so God interjects himself into him and his family. So we're going to start right there. So going to Genesis 12. So if you have your Bible and you want to start flipping, this is a good chance. They're going to be mostly in order, okay, but again, that will be pretty fast. So we will be in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I think up there you're going to kind of see just the, just the text headings, and then we're going to, going to read them to you, okay? So Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So here we see at the beginning that God gives Abraham a command. He says, go. So this is an example of a condition. Okay, so God says to Abraham, go, and then if you will go, I will do all these things. And the first one of those things that he says he will do is that he will show So you see that even in the command, God is providing for Abram. You said, you go and I will show you where to go. You guys see that? Okay, so the first thing is God says, I will show you. Then he also says, I will make. He says, I will bless and I will make your name great. And I will bless and I will curse. And through these things, all people will be blessed. So in fact, God does show Abram the land just as he promised. And then in Genesis 12, seven, the Lord appears to Abram and says, I will give this land to your offspring. Okay, so God shows Abram this land and then he says, I'm gonna give you this land. Then in Genesis 13, 14 through 16, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count Anyone could count the dust of the earth, and your offspring could also be counted. So here God promised to give Abraham many babies, many grandbabies, many great, 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 great grandbabies, to the the point where you won't even be able to count them. But, by the way, if you didn't know, at this point, Abraham is over 75 years old, and he has no kids. Oh, that's an interesting promise for God to make to somebody who has no kids. You're going to have so many kids, you won't even be able to count them, and yet I have none. In Genesis 15, 13 to 14, the Lord again says to Abram, know this for certain. Your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. However, I will judge the nations they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. Okay, so before God has even given Abram an inheritance, even given him a child, he says that the one you do have children, they're gonna be oppressed for 400 years in a foreign land. And it's like, well, that That kind of sucks, but this unjust nation will actually will be judged, and in fact, they're going to bless the children of Abraham as well. Now, in Genesis 17, 1 through 2, um, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, "I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly." Notice that line. It says, "Live in my presence." It's a very interesting phrase there. But here you see it. Abram is now 99 years old. Sarah, his wife has no children. It seems like God hasn't come through, but in fact, God just continues the promise that he's gonna keep doing what he says he's gonna do. So let's keep going. Genesis 17, through, through eight, it says this, then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, my covenant is with you. You will become the father of many nations, and you will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful, and I will make nations and kings from you. I will keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, come on, God. Like, you just keep giving Abram the same promises over and over and over again, over and over and over again. Like, you have to keep saying that. Now, if you're like me, that's actually a really important thing because I might be reminded that God loves me today. And then on Tuesday, I totally forget. I'm like, God doesn't love me at all. Have you ever felt that way? So whenever we read in scripture these promises over and over and over again, you're like, oh wait, yeah, I kind of need those things too. You know, I'm kind of glad there's four gospels so I can just keep reading about Jesus and his life. In fact, when it comes to relationships, you're dating somebody, you're married to somebody, yeah, you know, if they just tell you they love you once every five years, that's fine, right? No, no, I want to hear that like every other day at the very least, you know what I'm saying? At least every other day. Um, But maybe that's just me, I don't know. Okay, now, remember at this point, Abram is 99 years old. God called him at 75. It's been 24 years. Nothing's happened. And he's 99, and his wife's not that far behind him. And it's like, what is the dealio? All right, we'll keep going. Genesis 17, 15 to 16. God said to Abraham, As for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. So you see here that God also makes a promise to the wife, to Sarah. In fact, you see the name changes? So Abram becomes Abraham. And Abraham means father of a multitude. Again, no no kids yet at 99, but father of a multitude. Anybody know what Sarah means? means princess. So she's going to be the mother of many kings. Kind of makes sense, right? Okay, princess. That's pretty cool. Keep going. Genesis 18, 10-14, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were getting old and getting on in years. (laughs) No joke, right? Yeah, like 100 years old, come on. Um, And so Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed at herself and said, After becoming shriveled up and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. In about a year, she will have a son. So here you see a very specific promise. Okay, God says in about a year's time, you're going to have a, a a son, and that makes sense. You know, you, you get pregnant, and about nine months later, about a year later, you you have a kid. Okay, that makes sense. And then we were reminded here that nothing is impossible for God, even an old fart having a kid. It's not impossible with God. Okay, that's just the way it works. And so Sarah does in fact have a son, and Abraham names him Isaac, which means to laugh, because Sarah laughed when God said that they were going to have a son. And so Isaac gets a little bit older, and then God comes and tells Abraham, hey, I want you actually to take your son to this mountain I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham has to be thinking like, oh, my gosh, I waited all this time. Are you kidding me, God? But he he obediently does that. He takes him to the mountain, and right as he's about to to kill him, God stops him and, and instead supplies a substitute in its place. And then God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, 16 through 18, Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Do You hear that? All the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my command. So at this point, the narrative switches from from Abraham to Isaac, to the son, and we don't have as much information about him, but we still see that God comes and promises to him. Genesis 26, 3-5 says, I will be with you and bless you. For I will give all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your, offering all the, your offspring all these lands. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. And then again in Genesis twenty-six twenty-four, the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. Now, Isaac has two sons. Who remembers their names? No, Isaac has two sons. So it's Jacob and Esau. That's right, I heard them. So Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau is the oldest, which normally would be kind of the next in line. You know, the oldest kind of gets all the advantages. I'm the oldest, you know, it's kind of nice. But in this case, God calls Jacob, okay? But anybody know what Jacob means, the name? It means deceiver, Jacob means deceiver. Jake Turner thinks it means good looking, but it actually means, deter- it means, it means deceiver. And Jacob's really good at that. I'm not, not, not Jake Turner, but Jacob in the Bible is really good at deceiving. In fact, he deceives his brother multiple times, he deceives his father, and because of this, he has to flee. Okay, it's just to leave the land that God had promised to his family. And he's going to flee somewhere else. So in Genesis 28, 13 to 15, it says this, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land that you're now sleeping on. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out towards the, the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I'm with you, and I'll watch over you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you." So before Jacob leaves, God appears and says, don't worry, I'm going to bring you back. You're going to have this land, and I'm going to be with you. And don't you want to hear that when you're about to leave your family? You're like, hey, I'm going to be with you. I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm glad you're going to be with me. Okay, so Jacob does leave. He goes, and he lives in another country for a long time, and he gets married. Well, there's a little problem with that because his father-in-law deceives him. You know, kind of comes back to him, and so he ends up marrying the wrong person, and he eventually marries the one he wanted. But now he has a couple wives, and it's very complicated, as you can imagine. But he acquires this large family. In fact, he has twelve sons. Okay, but at this point, God comes and says to him in Genesis 31:3, "Go back to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I'll be with you." Okay, so now Jacob's kind of gotten settled where he's at, and he's actually gotten really wealthy. He's got his family, and God says, "Leave." Okay, and so. All right, so, so Jacob obeys, and he returns to the place, the very place that God had appeared to him before and promised to bring him back to. And here God comes again and says to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11 through 12, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you, and kings will descend from you. And I'll give to you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I'll give the land to your future descendants. Did you see that? He says you're gonna have kings come from you. He had told Sarah the same So here Jacob settles down with his family. Kind of a lot of stuff happens. One of his sons, Joseph, kind of gets betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, ends up in prison, but eventually ends up kind of second in command of the whole country. And the reason for that is because there's actually a famine that comes on the land. And so Jacob's family is in peril. They have no food. But God actually calls them to go to Egypt. And so God comes to Jacob and says this in Genesis 46, three through four. He says, I am God, the father of your fathers, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I'll go down with you to Egypt and I'll also bring you back. Now, remember in Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham that his people would be foreigners in the land and oppressed for 400 years. So that's what happens. Then they go, they go to Egypt. They're, they're in favor with the king, the pharaoh. But when the, that pharaoh dies, the next one is like, I don't like these people. They're, they're kind of multiplying too fast, you know, because God said this was going to happen. And so I don't like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them in bondage, and I'm going to make them build my buildings. And so that happens for 400 years, which, again, this really, really sucks. But this saves Jacob's family from starvation. and actually allows them to develop into a great people. Now, after 400 years, there's this other guy that shows up. Pretty famous. You guys know what I'm talking about? Moses, you know, big beard, and Ten Commandments, all that kind of stuff. Mo- Moses shows up, and God calls him. He's a descendant of Jacob. And he actually had grown up in Pharaoh's court. But one day, he had gone out and he had murdered an Egyptian. So he fled in fear to the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for a really long time. And then one day, he's minding his own business. He's shepherding his flocks, and then God calls to him from a burning bush, which is a little strange. You know, Exodus 3.12, God says this, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. And then in verse 17, God says, I have promised you that I will bring you from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. That's what God and the people call the promised land. Then in verse 19 and 22, However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go unless he is forced by a strong hand. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform. After that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. And in Exodus 4.12, God says to Moses, now go, I will help you speak and I'll teach you what to say. Now, that's really important because, at least according to Moses, he's a really sucky speaker. He can't really talk very well. So he's like, God, you've called me to do kind of the one thing I'm really bad at. In fact, to go back to the place that I fled because I murdered somebody. So that's not cool. But God says, no, go, and I will give you the words to say. So Moses does go to Pharaoh, but just as God said, Pharaoh's pretty hesitant to let his free labor go. You know, it's like, I'm not into that. And so God says this in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Maybe some of you guys know what happens next. God sends these 10 plagues on Egypt. And in one way, you know, it's this, this, this aspect of him showing power over the gods of Egypt. Um, and in fact, if you guys ever heard of Ra, it's, it's, one of the sun, it's the sun god of the Egyptians. And so God just blocks out the sun for a couple days. It's like, yeah, you think Ra's powerful. Look at who I am. So, so he's using this to demonstrate his power over the gods of Egypt, but he's also using it to free his people, just as he promised that he would do. So eventually, people are freed, and so they leave Egypt. And God continues to keep his covenant with his people He even gives them laws to follow and says, this is is what I want for you to do. He leads them through the wilderness to the land that he promised, to the Jordan River. So right across the Jordan River is, is the promised land that they have. And they're going to be a nation just like God had promised to Abraham and Sarah. But before they cross over, God now commands from them obedience. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22 says this, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all of his ways? to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I'm giving you today for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord was devoted to your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving them food and clothing. You also must love the foreigner, since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You are to fear Yahweh your God and worship him. Remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome works your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky. So you see this, they they went to Egypt, only 70 people, which is still a good number of people, but now they're numerous as the stars of the sky, that same promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is faithful, but his people were not. If you've read the Old Testament, you know they keep following after other idols, they keep looking to other things to trust in, and they don't seek after the Lord. They continually sin against him and they show their inability to keep the covenant that God has made with them. Therefore, this invites a curse on them. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six 26-28 says this, Look, today I set before you a blessing and a curse. There will be a blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God I'm giving you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God. And you turn aside from the path I command you today by following other gods you have not known. So what are we in this room to do if the people that God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of his descendants, and the law, they gave him the law, and he did miraculous signs to them. He fulfilled the promises he gave them. If even they cannot follow the laws he has given them and invite a curse on themselves, what are we to do? Praise God that in his infinite love and wisdom, he sent his son to do what we could not do. Jesus came to earth lived a sinless life, died on a cross, taking the curse of sin and disobedience on himself, and three days later rose from the dead, declaring victory over death and the grave. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says this. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh, like ours, under sin's domain as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we see here that, look, there's this law that God gave us, and it's good. But it is limited, and it is limited because of our flesh, our sinfulness, our continual draw to disobey and rebel against God. But there's these two words that are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, and it says, God did. He accomplished what we could not accomplish through his Son, who he sent to die on the cross. What we could not do, God did. Now, this salvation is not only for the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is very important, but it's for all peoples, just as God promised Isaiah 49, 6-7 says this about the Messiah. It says, it is, not, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So what does that mean for us? What does God promise to us that are here today? One, we need to know that we've all broken God's covenant, just like his people in the Old Testament. Romans three twenty three says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because we rebelled against Him, we deserve death. Romans six twenty three says, "For the wages of sin is death." But He offered also to us eternal life. The rest of that verse says, "But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." And in John one twelve through thirteen, it says, "But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh, but of the will of, or the will of man, but of God." This is referring to Jesus. So it's saying that all who receive Jesus now have the right to be called children of God. That's pretty significant, pretty awesome. So if we will turn from our sin and put our faith in him, this is what we have. But there's also some other promises for those who do not believe. For those who do not believe in Jesus, who do not turn from their sin and put their faith in him, God promises eternal separation from himself. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says this, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers, because we continually break the law. Revelation twenty fifteen says "And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So for those of us who do not put our faith in him, the promise God has given us is that we will be separated from him forever, which is an awful and terrible thing. But for those who do believe, who turn from our sin and follow Christ, we are promised to have eternal fellowship with him. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says this. He says, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. Do you see the intimacy and the fellowship there? We get to have dinner with God. We get to eat with him. We get to be with him for those who put our trust in him and invite him in. But also on top of that, we have the honor and privilege if we put our faith in Christ to not only have fellowship with him, but we also get to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says this After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is a picture of eternity. This is a picture of God's throne. And all those who put their faith in Christ, they are the legitimate children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they will be together there before him. And it says right here that you will not be able to number them. you remember the promise God kept making to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over and over and over again? It said, you will, even though you're 99, you're going to have this, this, these descendants that you will not even be able to number. And they're here, right here, before the Lamb of God. And also it says, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So it's not just limited to the, the biological blood, but God said that every nation will be blessed through you. And so that means that now we have this opportunity to rest in the promises of God. So the invitation to us is this. If we do not know God, if we have not put our faith in Him, to, to no longer be separated from Him, we put our trust in Christ and put our faith in Him. If we have done that, if we put our faith in Him we are walking and following after Christ, we can remember that our hope is this. An eternity of celebrating God and the fulfillment of His promises. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you remind us over and over and over again that you care for us and you love us, that you call out to us and you ask us to turn from our sin and follow after you. Thank you that we have the examples in the Old Testament and New Testament of people that you promised and you fulfilled the promises to them. We have examples of those who were obedient. Lord, I ask that we would be obedient in following after you, that we would be obedient to be your servant We be obedient as your church and your people. Lord, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.